Well, I invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 118 this morning. We'll take a little break from uh, studying Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 and focus our thoughts on what's uh, certainly appropriate for this season, and that is uh, giving thanks to God. Psalm 118. And basically I'll read for you verse 1, and then again verse 29. So as I read this for you, since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of His Holy Word. Psalm 118, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And His loving kindness is everlasting. And in case you didn't hear Him right at that time, go to verse 29. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. This great doxology forms the bookends on Psalm 118. It begins and it ends with this great exhortation to give thanks to God for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. The very first time Scripture gives us this doxology is found on the lips of King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And it was at the time when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant for the very first time into the city of Jerusalem. And in the midst of all the celebration and all the jumping and leaping that David was doing, in the midst of all the the singing and celebrating, all the cymbals and the lyres and all the the, uh, musical instruments were playing, the trumpets were blasting, the sacrifices were being offered to God. And in the midst of all of that, as the Ark of the Covenant of God is coming in to find a home in the city of Jerusalem for the very first time that David teaches Asaph and his descendants to sing a great psalm of thanksgiving. And at the end of that psalm of thanksgiving, as it crescendos, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And that is picked up by the Spirit of God as kind of a national battle cry. A national anthem, if you will. That they would celebrate the goodness of God and give thanks to His name for He is worthy for who He is. So we find this same doxology opening Psalm 106 and again Psalm 107 and Psalm 136 and and in other places found throughout the Scripture where the voice of the Spirit of God leads the people of God to say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. Well, as we find it here in Psalm 118, we find that uh, the psalmist is now opening the psalm and closing the psalm with this great battle cry of faith, this great anthem of the ancient church, and that is of just praising God, giving thanks to God because of His character. He is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. The context the larger context that you find uh, not only when David 
uh, brought in the Ark of the Covenant, but also in the Psalms that I've just mentioned where this same doxology is found. Uh, the context is thanking God for His mercies, for the, the abundance of His goodness upon His people, but also as demonstrated in, in rescuing Israel from their enemies. Rescuing Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Rescuing God's people from their sins and forgiving them and restoring them. And all of this becomes kind of the general large background which informs this particular doxology. In Psalm 118, the psalmist basically is thanking God for His timeless love, His timely help from His distresses. He's thanking God for giving Him victory over His own personal enemies. And He's thanking God for the joy of worship, a prayer of deliverance and prosperity, and and a final benediction of of thanksgiving ends the very psalm uh, of Psalm 118. So what I'd like for us to do today is just kind of step back and look at this doxology from more of a a general perspective in light of all that Scripture attaches to this doxology and direct our thoughts in light of Thanksgiving uh, on Thursday uh, to give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. As you can see, there's a command, give thanks to the Lord. There are two reasons for giving thanks to God. Number one, for He is good. And number two, because His loving kindness is everlasting. We don't have time to look at reason number two. We're going to look mainly at reason number one this morning. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Notice it begins with this command. Give thanks to the Lord. You know, when you think about it, this is really all that we can give to God is thanks. We can give him nothing else. We can give God thanks and the least we can give him is thanks. And it's best when our thanksgiving is not just coming from our lips, but it's coming from our lives. I'm getting behind. As Matthew Henry said, Thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. And really, that's the goal of Thanksgiving is not only just to say the words, but to live out those words and not just one day a year, but every day of the year, because thanks living is best of all. As we begin to uh, look at the importance of the command, we see that it's one of those things that God desires for us to take seriously. It's something that we are commanded in Scripture to give thanks to God at all times and in all circumstances. And we should spend as much time thanking God as we spend asking God for His blessings. In other words, we should thank God for his blessings as often, if not more often, than we actually ask God for his blessings. And it's one of the the blessed, joyful duties that we have to give thanks to God. And that those who develop this joyful habit of living with a thankful heart will always experience more the blessings of faith than those who do not give thanks. 
As one once said, a thankful heart has a continual feast. Because when you go through life and you practice thanksgiving and thanks living, you live with a joyful festival attitude in your heart because you're always giving thanks. You're always seeing the hand of God. You're always seeing the goodness of the Lord so that those who have a thankful heart have a continual feast in their soul as they give thanks to the Lord. Well, the first reason that the psalmist gives for why we should give thanks to the Lord is simply because He is good. A.W. Tozer helps us in defining what that means to say that, that God is good. He says in his book on the knowledge of the holy, that the goodness of God is that which disposes Him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. And then he adds that the goodness of God is taught or implied on every page of Scripture. And it's an article of faith as impregnable as the throne of God itself. It's a foundation stone for all sound thought about God and is necessary to moral sanity. If God is not good, then there can be no distinction between kindness and cruelty. And heaven can be hell and hell can be heaven if God is not good. So there is no moral fabric that anyone can understand unless God is good. And I think that's probably why the uh, moral values of our own nation and really throughout the world are plummeting is because we've lost not only a belief in God, but the belief that God is good and has a standard of goodness. Well, when you go out to eat at your favorite restaurant, sometimes you can order a sampler tray and you get the taste little morsels of a variety of their foods. Well, I'm going to give you kind of a, a sampler tray of verses on the goodness of God. I love Nahum. When was the last time you read the prophet Nahum? Nahum verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Isn't that a wonderful reason to give thanks to God? Because he's, he's not only good, he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Anybody going through a day of trouble today? Well, the Lord is your stronghold. He's your defense. He's your fortress. He's your rock. He's good. And that's why we should give him thanks. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. The goodness of God is not just a theory. It's not just a, a theological statement. It's something you can experience. Something you can taste. Something you can see. That the goodness of God manifests itself in all areas of our life. So come, taste and see that the Lord is good. And God is good. And of course that applies to Jesus Christ. The son of God. Who said I am the good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me. Because Jesus Christ himself. Is the good shepherd. When you talk about God is good. We, we, we mean that God is 
is good in his own nature, in his own being. God is good. Uh, Thomas Manton, one of the old Puritans, said that God is originally good. For all of his creatures are good only secondarily by participation and communication with God. He said God is essentially good because it's, it's his very essence, it's his very nature, whereas the creature's good is a super added quality. God is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop. But God is good and His goodness is like an infinite ocean. God is eternally and immutably good. For you cannot add any more goodness to God than He already has. And you cannot subtract any of His goodness from Him. For God cannot be less good than He is. That He is the summum bonum. He's the highest good. And of course, in contrast to God, who are we? There is none good. No, not one. None of us are good. In Adam's sin, we have inherited a fallen nature. We are not good. God is the only good. But not only is God good, God does good. So when we say give thanks to the Lord for he is good, it's not only because his very nature is good, infinitely and eternally and immutably good, but he does good. And that is worthy of us giving him praise and thanksgiving as well. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, you are good and do good. Now, there's many different ways that God does good and manifests his goodness. He certainly does it by creation. We read another uh, quote from A.W. Pink, who says that all that comes from and emanates from God, his decrees, his creation, his laws, his providences cannot be otherwise than good. For it is written, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1. On the day of creation, the sixth day of creation, after God created everything, he looked at it, and he said, it is very good. Because everything that emanates out of the character of God is good. Because he is good. So that all that he does, all that he creates, all of his decrees, all of his providential actions in history are good because that is who he is. Uh, we read in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We were made good. Sin has distorted that. Sin has ruptured that. But God made us good. But we see his goodness throughout creation. We see his goodness in all of the, the blessings that he has given to us. We can smell His goodness in flowers. We can taste His goodness in the food that we eat. So on, on Thursday, you know, we're going we're gonna to eat more food than human beings ought to be allowed to eat on Thursday. But you look, before you dive in, you know, do a swan dive in this great, great banquet feast, just look at that table. 
and see the goodness of God in providing the abundance of all this food and the variety of food. It's just an expression that God has blessed us and God is good and does good to his creatures. Uh, We also not only see God's goodness in creation, but we see God's goodness in his providence. We see that in his common grace, for example, in Acts chapter 14, verse 17. And yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So that in common grace, God shows his goodness to all of the earth, to all kinds of men, both the The elect and the non-elect, God shows his common grace goodness in providing rains for their crops and the sunshine for their fields. And so that we see that God in his providence shows goodness towards his creatures. But we also see his goodness in saving grace as well. In the providence of his saving grace. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So notice that God causes all things to work together for good. Not just the good things to work together for good, but the trials and the bad things and the evils within the world. God works together for the good. And particularly, this is a promise, you see, specifically made to believers If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I cannot encourage you with these promises because you don't know the Savior yet. You don't know the God who has made this promise to his own children, to his own sheep. And we pray that you will come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so you can claim the incredible blessing of this promise. And we know that again that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. See, this is a promise to His children. To those who are called according to His purpose. His elect, His chosen ones who have come to faith. He works all things together for good. So you see God's goodness and His providence over your life as a believer. Regardless of what circumstance you go through, God will work it for good in your life. That's his promise to us. And that is certainly a good reason to give him thanks. But we also see God's goodness and his providence seen in his universal grace. In James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. doesn't mean, uh, it means that whatever good thing comes down to earth, regardless to who it comes to, regardless of the time or the place or the people or the individual, that God is the one who sends it. Every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from above. So that in His universal grace, God gives good things to the world in which he is made. So we see God's goodness in creation. We see God's goodness in uh, his providence. But of course, we primarily see his goodness in redemption. And again, in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So that all that Jesus Christ came to accomplish, all that he came to do in saving us from our sin is an expression of the fact that he's the good shepherd. And he does good by laying down his life for his sheep. We also read in Hebrews 4.2 that we had the good news preached to us. That's what the gospel is that Jesus saves. The gospel is good news. We see God's goodness primarily on display through his work of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that redemption, if God is the highest good, redemption is the highest work of his goodness for sending his son to die in our place, to bear our sins, that we might forever be forgiven for those who repent and believe in him. Christ's salvation not only is good, it's the highest good. It comes from the good shepherd himself. But it also produces by his grace a measure of goodness within those who know him. William Tyndale said that God's goodness is the root of all goodness. And our goodness, if we have any, springs out of his goodness. And that's because when the good shepherd comes and lays down his life to save us from our sins... That begins a good work in us, which God will perfect. And that's what Paul says in Philippians 1, that I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So the good shepherd does a good work. He saves us, which is the highest good. But in saving us, he changes our nature and he begins to make us good. He does a, a good work in us which we must acknowledge as an extension of His goodness. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So whatever good works that you and I might ever do is because God has prepared those in advance. God is the one working through us, both the will and the do for His good pleasure. So that the goodness that emanates from us is because the goodness has first emanated from him. And it's all through the good work of redemption and salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. But then we come to this uh, challenging uh, thought of God's goodness in a, in a fallen world. Because this is where I think we struggle and giving thanks to God for he is good. Because we see so much evil within the world. We see so many disasters. We see so much death and suffering in the world. How can God be good if there's so much evil within the world? Well, there is a uh, conservative Jew by the name of Harold Kushner. Who years ago wrote a very famous book at that time entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he wrote that book out of his own sense of suffering and sorrow when he lost his own son who had an incurable genetic disease called progeria, which is advanced aging. And in, in his own struggling with how can God be good when there's so much evil and suffering in the world, this uh, particular rabbi came to the conclusion that God could not prevent evil 
from coming into the world. That God cannot stop it. God cannot control evil. But he merely does the best he can. And he's always with us in our suffering. But he's not able to stop it or prevent it. Because God ultimately is not omnipotent. Remember that's a great uh, philosophical issue uh, called um, theodicy, I think. Is that right? Having a mental blip. But uh, it's where if God is all powerful, how can there and, and, and God is all good, then how can there be evil in the world? If God is all powerful and God is all good, if there's evil in the world, then either one, God is not all powerful and couldn't stop it, couldn't prevent it, or two, God must not be all good. And Rabbi Kushner took the option that God must not be all powerful. He's good, but he's not all powerful. That is not what the scriptures teach. And when it comes to God's goodness in a fallen world, we have to come back to the point of acknowledging that God is sovereign over all of these things. That God has ordained that evil and suffering come into his world so that by the greatness of his majesty and by the depths of his grace, he can turn that evil into good and put his glory on display. That's what I believe the scriptures teaches. And that's why we can again find comfort in the promise of Romans 8.28. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. He causes all things to work together for good. He controls them. He's sovereign over them. He orchestrates them. He's in control of them. So that God causes all things, the good things, the bad things, to work together for good. Because that's His great promise to His children. And that is what He does on a regular basis. Of course, the greatest example of God's ability to bring good out of evil is the crucifixion of His Son. If you think about it, there's no greater act of evil or rebellion against God than when the Jews came and, and crucified, employing Pilate and the Romans, but had the Son of God, their own Messiah, crucified on a cross. That has to be the greatest evil of all human history. And yet out of the greatest evil came the greatest good of all human history as well. That out of that great evil came the blessing of salvation and forgiveness so that God brought life from the dead. God brought good out of the evil. And the evil He predestined according to His infinite purpose in Acts 2 and Acts 4. These are things that we cannot fully comprehend or understand. But it teaches the important biblical truth that although God is not the immediate cause of evil, Nevertheless, he's the sovereign overlord of it. He overrules it for his own purpose. He controls it for his own plan. So that God's promise that he works all things together for good is something that can encourage your heart this morning and my heart as well. And this is why we should give thanks to God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good 
And not only is He good, but He works good out of all of the circumstances of my life. Oh, give thanks to the Lord because He is good. We also see that uh, as we work this out, that God displays His goodness in our own suffering. And I think it's important for us as believers to train our hearts to interpret the circumstances of our life in light of God's Word and God's promises. We need to train our hearts to not only believe, but to see God's goodness, even in the midst of our suffering. Not that suffering in and of itself is good, it's painful, it's evil. But in the midst of that, God manifests His goodness to His people. We see that in, in many different ways in the, in, the, in the Scriptures. That God uses our suffering to manifest His goodness in our, number one, in our sanctification. That so many times the reason why God allows or sends troubles and trials in our life is to advance our growth in godliness. To advance our growth in holiness. To become more sanctified. We see this in a ton of places. For example, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 and 17. said, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now you want to know how his outer man was decaying? Read chapter 11. Five times he received the Jewish 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. He was beaten times without number. And yet he could say, though the outer man is decaying, yet my inner man, my spirit, is being renewed day by day. And the question is, how can that be, Paul? How can your outward body have so much pain and aches and arthritis from all the beatings that he no doubt uh, received? And yet you can say your inner man is growing younger and more vital day by day. How can that be? Well, because of verse 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. In other words, in the midst of all of his suffering, in the midst of all of his beatings, in the midst of all of his bodily pain, the Spirit of God used that to help Paul to lift up his gaze off of the present suffering of the day. To see the glory of the future. To see the glory of one day being in the presence of God. And that his momentary light affliction is producing this eternal weight. Not just a temporary weight, but an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison of anything the pleasures and blessings of this world could offer. See, God used the suffering and the pain in Paul's life to make him focus upon the glory yet to come. That is good. That is a good purpose for that suffering. That's why he went through so much, so God could teach him to change his focus, to look to the future, to look to the glory. And this is one way that God shows His goodness in our suffering. And it's the reason why we should give Him thanks. 
We'll move on to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and hear again what the Apostle Paul has learned. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So God gave Paul these incredible revelations of truth about the the gospel and all the great truths found in his his epistles. And because of that, because of Paul's nature, he would have had a tendency to become proud and and arrogant because of just the the incredible revelations he had seen. So to short circuit that pride, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Don't know exactly what it is. It could have been a physical affliction. It could have been the tormenting of the false teachers there in Corinth. But it's a messenger of Satan and it tormented Paul. You say, well, how can that be good? To have a thorn in my side that torments me. Oh, but it was good. From God's perspective, it was very good. Because through that thorn in his flesh, through that messenger and attack of Satan upon the Apostle Paul, it kept his pride and his arrogance bottled up so he would not exalt himself. It created a gospel humility within him, which was good. That was good. Sanctification is good. And sometimes suffering is a means of advancing our sanctification. Who wants to suffer? Nobody does. But God is able to bring good out of evil. And that's what he's doing in Paul's life. And I'm confident he's doing the same thing in your life and my life today as well. We can add to this Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. That whenever we endure Discipline from our Heavenly Father because of our sin. Not all of our troubles are due to discipline. Sometimes they are. And the author of Hebrews says that they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our what? Our good. So that we may share His holiness. I don't know if you've ever had the discipline of God in your life. I've probably had it more times than I've ever understood or even acknowledged. But the times of discipline are not fun. They are troubling days. They are days of sorrow, days of pain, days of discouragement, days of depression. And God is disciplining us. Why would he do that? Why would he send circumstances into my life and your life that that just sag your spirit down? That puts a millstone around it and casts me into the bottom of the sea. Why would God do that? Well, he disciplines us for our good. Well, I don't understand it. I don't either. But that's what scripture says. He disciplines us for our good and he will bring good out of it because that's what he promised. I love what Psalm 119 says, verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Really? It's good for me that I was afflicted? Yes, the psalmist says. Because 
I learn the statutes and the commandments of God all the more intimately, all the more personally because of my affliction. My affliction drove me to the Word of God as it should. My afflictions drove me to cry out to God and He brought truth and illumination of His Word to my heart. And I learned His statutes on a far deeper, deeper level. You see, the goodness of God is manifested even in our suffering. And when we by faith can grasp that, then we can give Him thanks and praise even in times of trials and suffering. Well, I'm kind of in a poetic mood. Uh, not my own poetry, but some of the great hymns of the faith. And when you look at uh, this truth, how often it comes up in our hymns is just such a blessing. Uh, one uh, written by James Hervey says, Good when he gives, supremely good, nor less when he denies, even crosses from his sovereign hand are blessings in disguise. And I love that because when God gives, he gives good. It's supremely good, but it's no less good when he withholds his blessings from us. Because even that is good in his infinite wisdom. So that even our crosses from his sovereign hand are blessings in disguise. He got it. He got the truth of scripture. And then William Cooper in that great hymn. Every verse of this hymn is glorious. God moves in a mysterious way. Here's one. Of my favorite. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And we need to be reminded of that because oftentimes life is full of frowning providences of God. It seems that God is stern and God is angry, but behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Because God intends that through the frown, His goodness will be ultimately put on display. Well, the, the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation, captures the same truth. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. And then Isaac Watts, high in the heavens, eternal God, thy goodness and full glory shines. Thy truth shall break through every cloud that veils and darkens thy designs. So a lot of times it seems that God's purpose is dark and, 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 and it's veiled. His, his goodness is veiled behind the dark clouds of my circumstances of life. But Isaac Watt reminds us that his truth, his goodness will eventually shine through and we can trust him for that. One of the great encouragements about this is to know that God's goodness, particularly in our times of suffering and trial, is not momentary. It's not just here and there. It's constant. It's steady throughout our life. That's why in Psalm 23, the psalmist could close with these words, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's goodness 
Well, you remember Psalm 23. It starts out that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All of that is God's blessings, God's goodness. We're like little sheep and he takes us out into the green pastures. He leads us beside those cold water streams that refreshes us. But then he goes on and he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And it's not only in the good times, not only in the seasons of green fields, but when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear it. Because God is with me even there. So that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Whether in blessings or whether in trial. Whether in life or whether in death. Goodness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the great hope. This is a great confidence that every child of God should have. That the Lord God is sovereign. That the Lord God is good. That he's able to make even our trials bring forth his goodness. So that we can learn to trust him. And I think when we learn to trust God. And to see his goodness in all circumstances of our life. Then we can give him thanks. Then we can praise him. And by trusting in God's goodness. That can free us from those gnawing questions of why. Why, God, are you allowing this in my life? Why, God, do I have to suffer this? Why, God, don't you take this away? And instead of wrestling with the why, we can just simply learn to trust him. Trust him because we know and believe that his goodness is manifested in all of it. To trust his goodness and to give thanks to God for his blessings. Spurgeon said, we can't always trace God's hand, but we can always trust God's heart. And his heart towards you is good. And we should give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So God shows his goodness to us uh, in our times of sufferings to further our sanctification But he also shows his goodness to us in times of suffering by the principle of imitation. That we might be conformed more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29 says that's the destiny for all of God's children to be conformed to the image of his son. And Paul explains how God did that in Philippians 3 for him personally. Being a self-righteous Pharisee and being kind of the Hebrew of Hebrews and blameless before the law in his own mind. And yet he said, I had to count the loss of all those things in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And look at what he says. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've lost it all. All my reputation, all the glory that I had in Israel, all my rights as a Pharisee, I lost all of that. But I count it as rubbish so that I may gain Christ 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In other words, through all of my losses, God conformed me more and more to the image of his son. I learned the fellowship of his suffering. I'm being conformed to his death. I'm being brought more into the very image of Jesus Christ through all that I lost. And we should say the same thing. That whatever we had to lose in coming to faith in Jesus Christ and seeking after the pearl of great price, that whatever we lost is nothing. But through that loss, oftentimes the Lord brings us into a closer, more intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. Not only does God show his goodness in our suffering through our sanctification, through our imitation, but also through multiplication. Because sometimes God will use your sufferings and your trials to bless many other people. We find that in the great uh, example of Joseph. His brothers were jealous of him. They didn't like him. We know the story well. We've heard it often. They sold him into slavery to the Midianites who, who took him as a slave to Egypt. He ended up in Potiphar's house. And of course, because he wouldn't commit a sinful act with his wife, he was thrown in jail. And you go on and on through the story of Joseph. And, and he endured much suffering, much affliction, many trials. And yet, towards the end of the book, as we all know so well, that when his brothers finally came to get food because there was no more food in the land of Canaan where they lived, and Joseph finally manifested himself to them, now being elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh, he could say to them, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You didn't really send me because God was sovereign over your evil hearts. God was sovereign and controlling and using your evil plans to ultimately preserve life, to do good to you as well as many other people as well. Verse 7, For God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And then the verse that we're we're all more familiar with in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says to them again, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So God used the trials and the difficulties and the struggles of Joseph, not only to ultimately exalt him, but through him to bring blessings and good gifts to his brothers, to his family and, and to countless multiplications of other people as well. And sometimes I think we get so focused on ourselves in our trials and our troubles, and we begin to just focus on woe is me, and we forget to see that through my trial, as God brings me through it by His grace, He can use me to be a blessing to many other people as well. That's why in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul could say that, hey, we now comfort others with the comfort that we receive from the Lord through our problems and our trials. So look from that perspective of how God is using your suffering, your, your difficulties, because you may very well be able to be a blessing to other people as you share the good news.
And then there's also glorification. That sometimes God uses our suffering to show His goodness and glorifying His own name in the midst of it. This is what we have in John 11, verse 4, the raising of Lazarus. It says, when Jesus heard that Lazarus had died, He said, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And so here we see that even in the death, the suffering, I don't know how long Lazarus suffered. I don't know how much pain he had until finally he died. But all of that was according to God's plan so that God would be glorified when Jesus raised him from the dead. I think it's important to realize that God shows his goodness in times of suffering and times of trials when he brings glory to himself and oftentimes that resonates within our heart that's why in Luke 8 when Jesus got in the boat with his disciples they started going across the sea of Galilee late at night and suddenly there's a a powerful wind that began to blow on the sea of Galilee and it was so strong that the waves began to wash up over the side of the boat and the disciples were scared to death They thought they were drowning. They thought they were going to drown out in the middle of the sea that they would die. And so Jesus is over there asleep. But they're going through this life-threatening, distressing, terrible circumstance. And why did God ordain for them to go through that? Why did they have to go through that terrifying, scary circumstance of being dark at night and the waves are washing up over the boat and you feel like you're going you're gonna to drown at the bottom of the lake so they would see the glory of Christ. And after they woke Christ up, He stood up and He commanded the wave and the winds to hush, be still, and they immediately bowed down and became still before His presence. And how did the disciples respond in the boat? Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Sometimes God will send trials and and terribly frightening circumstances into our life that later he remedies so that we would see his glory and see his goodness in rescuing us from those life-threatening circumstances. Well, as we think about the goodness of God as a reason for giving thanks to God this season. We can find finally that the glory of God is often associated with this attribute of goodness. I like the way Jerry Bridges put it when he says that God's goodness is the preeminent expression of his glory. God's goodness is the preeminent expression of His glory. And you see that in several places in Scripture. Remember when, when Moses, after the, the Aaron had made the golden calf, and after God had brought judgment upon them for their sin at the very base of Mount Sinai, in light of hearing the commandment of the Ten Commandments uttered by the very voice of God from the top of Mount Sinai, They broke so many of them when they made a graven image. And yet Moses cries out to God that he would spare the nation. And God in his mercy says that he would go with them. 
And Moses cries out, show me your glory. Remember that? In Exodus chapter 33. And the Lord goes on and says, I will show you my glory. But the way he says it in Exodus 33 verse 19 is that I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. So Moses wanted to see his glory. And God showed him his goodness. Because it's the goodness of God that is the preeminent expression of his glory. And then I love it when Solomon later on is making the temple that David had set aside all the resources for. Now Solomon has the charge of actually building the temple of God. And once the final stone is laid and the, and the, and the last little bit of decoration is completed, it's time for him to dedicate the temple to God. And in the midst of all that celebration again, like when David brought the ark into Jerusalem, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, it was all of the fanfare and the choirs were singing and the animals were being sacrificed and the music was playing and there was great joyful singing. But they began to shout out that God is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. And that is such a glorious truth that once they began to recite the goodness of God, that the very glory of God descended down into the temple in a cloud so that the priest could not even go in and enter the temple because the glory of God was attesting to his goodness that they were singing and praising him for. So it is a very rich truth of Scripture that God's goodness is one of the chief manifestations of His glory. And it's why we should give Him thanks. Again, Psalm 18, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let me just kind of wrap up this morning and just say that I think this is a truth that every child of God should Uh, hammered deep down into their soul. Because we live in such a sinful and fallen world where human goodness is on a steep decline. And this should motivate us as we live in a world that is not good. When we live in a world that is full of suffering and sin and pain and evil, that this should motivate us to give thanks to God because He alone is good. He is the fountain of goodness. That He is good and He does good. And He shows His goodness even in our suffering. That He's able to bring good out of evil. And this is an article of faith, if you will, that every child of God needs to focus and attach the affections of our heart upon God because He is good. His providences may vary, but His nature is always the same. So that we must interpret our frowning providences, believing and trusting that behind them hides a smiling face. And when you believe that, you will live life as a feast because your heart and soul will be full of joy because you're focused on the goodness of God and interpret all of life's circumstances 
with this great doxology that God is good. And He is good not just now, but He's good always, forever. It's His very nature. He can't be anything other than good to you because you're His child. If you're here this morning and you have never come to know the goodness of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to think about your sin because you will truly never know the goodness of God until you know the goodness of God in redemption. Until you have come to the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and come in all of your sinfulness and all of your evil, but you want forgiveness. You want to know this good God. And you must come to Him through Jesus Christ. And then you will taste His goodness. This was true of the prodigal son after he had gone and squandered all of his inheritance with immoral living. But when he ended up in the pig pen and his stomach was empty and he had squandered and wasted all of the blessings that his father has given him, he humbled himself. He repented of his sin and he decided that he would return home. And as he's walking down that road and his father sees him, the goodness of his father caused him to run out and embrace his prodigal son, to kiss him, to put a ring on his hand, the best robe over his shoulders, sandals on his feet, to kill the fatted calf and to hold a great festival of celebration because that is the goodness of God to any sinner who comes to Christ for forgiveness. And you can see it in the Father's love and in the Father's goodness in providing His own Son to save you from your sins. But if you're in that pig pen of sin, you must humble yourself you must confess your sin and repent and you must go to your Father through Jesus, His Son, so that you might taste and see the goodness of the Lord. It's a goodness of God that Christ emphasized in the parable with the self-righteous Pharisee at the temple praying. And he lifted up his eyes and he was praying to himself. He doesn't even say he was praying to God. He's praying to himself, the Scripture says. And he's boasting in all of his righteousness how meticulous he was in all of his tithing of mint, dill, and cumin and how he was so righteous and he was just thanking himself for being such a good man. And yet over there off to the distance was that tax collector who stood afar off. He was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven because of the shame and the guilt of his sinfulness and he began to beat his breast but in the midst of his repentance and sorrow over his own sin he tasted the goodness of God because he cried out and he said God be merciful to me the sinner and did God hear that prayer he heard that prayer and he answered that prayer because as Jesus went on to tell his his disciples that it was that man that tax collector, not the proud Pharisee, but that publican who went to his house justified because of his turning to the goodness of God, asking for, for forgiveness 
repenting of his sins. It was God's goodness to the thief on the cross who had stolen and probably murdered people. And yet he could say to him after he repented of his sin, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the goodness of God. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, you need to come to him so that you can taste of his goodness and know of his salvation. So great is God's goodness is that he's willing to receive the worst of sinners who humble themselves and cry out to God for mercy because God gives his mercy because God is good. So give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And may the Lord remind us of that great doxology throughout the week and the coming year. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you again for this opportunity when we can just pause and think about all the reasons that we have to be thankful today. Lord, you have blessed us in so many ways. Lord, we may not have perfect health, but we have some health, and we thank you for that. We may not be rich, but we have enough for our needs, and we thank you and praise you for that too. But Lord, we thank you that you have given to us your greatest gift in giving us your son. That your goodness is on its highest display through Jesus Christ, who came in his own goodness to save those who are bad, those who are evil, those who are sinners, that we might know the forgiveness of our sins and, and taste and see that the Lord is good. And Father, we thank you that in your providence that you work all things together for good, not just our blessings, but even our sorrows, our trials, that you're able to use those trials in such a way to bring about our sanctification and our imitation and our multiplication and even your own glorification. And we are amazed that you are so good and so powerful that you're able even to turn evil and to make it show forth your goodness in our lives. And we give you praise and glory. So, Lord, fill us with a thankful heart. And let us, Lord, see your goodness that we might give you thanks and praise you and rejoice in your presence because you are a good God. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.